last week I explored with you what is it that Christians do? And we asked the question, what is it that Christians want to do? And last week we uh, saw how Acts chapter 2 answered the question as it told us that the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being undone through the apostles. That's what Christians did, and that's what Christians desired to do. And here in chapter 3, following that passage, Luke records one such example of the apostles' ministry. We see here one particular example of the apostles' Christians being devoted to prayer, to the ministry of the Word. And as we uh, look at this very particular example of the apostles' ministry, we realize that the apostolic ministry really had one goal, and that goal was to exalt the name of Christ. And so this morning, uh, we are going to see three aspects of the name of Christ. And the first thing, the first aspect of the name of Christ that we are confronted here is the power of Jesus' name. The power of Jesus' name. Now, as you know, uh, Luke, Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke and Acts, Luke was an attentive historian. Uh, We read how at the beginning of Luke's gospel and also Acts that he made careful inquiries, spoke with people, and, and compiled this accurate and faithful narrative of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he was a very attentive historian, and he was... Evidently, as we read through Luke and Acts, he was also a very skillful writer and a communicator. And interestingly, in Colossians chapter 4, the apostle Paul calls Luke, Luke the beloved physician. Uh, he was a doctor. Uh, he was a very well-educated uh, man with many different interests and skills. And what interests me from this passage is that Luke was a physician because it seems to me that we see in this passage the kind of details that would interest a physician. Uh, first, Luke tells us that this, wa- this man was lame from birth. Uh, he was born with a congenital birth defect that left him unable to walk. Uh, he was as a consequence, utterly dependent upon the benevolence of other people. And so perhaps his family, perhaps his friends, they would daily bring him to uh, the beautiful gate. Uh, This is the main entrance, main eastern entrance into the temple precincts, and it was called a beautiful gate because the gate was evidently about 75 feet tall, and it was decorated with very expensive uh, bronze. And so this was a very uh, imposing and impressive structure and place. And what a contrast, isn't it? This this beautiful, imposing gate and this poor, pitiful man sitting in front of it, utterly dependent upon the goodness and the kindness of other people. And he would beg as people came in through the gate to worship God. And of course, almsgiving, 
giving money to the poor was a, was a major part of the Old Testament faith. And as people came to worship God, they would be moved by pity and give this man some money. And on this day, this lame man saw two men, Peter and John. Peter and John were going into the temple to pray. And we saw this last week, didn't we? How the apostles and the early Christians, they devoted themselves to both public worship and prayer and private fellowship, worship, and prayer. And this is at a point in history where the Jewish authorities have not really settled in their response and approach to the Christians. And so this is a point in history where Christians are still going to the Jewish temple to pray and worship. And so, uh, interestingly, this event, this healing of the lame man, is what begins the Jewish persecution of the Christians, and we will come to that next week. But at this point, uh, Peter and John, along with other Christians, no doubt, they were going to the temple to pray, and this lame man, he saw them, and seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter, just as uh, he had seen Jesus do it many times before, you know how in the Gospels we read Jesus would often be moved by compassion and he would reach out and touch the people that he would help. He touched the leper. He would grab and, and take hold of them. And it was an act of love, wasn't it? And Peter, just like he has seen Jesus do so many times, he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Luke was a doctor, he was a physician, and no doubt he was familiar with debilitating birth defects. You know, today we say children are resilient. <laughs> Much of that is due to modern medicine, you know. Before the dawn of modern medicine, I don't know if you could really say that children are resilient. Many children died either at, at the time of birth or early on in their childhood. And many children were afflicted with illnesses and diseases. And I have no doubt that Luke, the physician, was well familiar with just terrible, debilitating birth defects. And no doubt he saw, just as you and I have seen, you know, when people, for example, are wheelchair-bound and they haven't used their legs for a long time, you know what happened, don't you? Muscles atrophy. And so that their legs end up becoming looking like limp, dried twigs. But Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And at Peter's command, his legs straightened. Leg muscles developed in an instant and took shape. And this man, who had never taken one step before, 
He rose. His brain had never processed the nerve signals in his entire life to move the legs in a walking motion. His brain had never learned to balance the body so that he doesn't topple over. But at the power, in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the, there was an immediate change. Creation of new nerve endings, new nerve connections. Muscles began to fire. There was a new regenerative effect. And he, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Can you sense with what thrill Luke wrote this? I've known a few physicians in my life, and I've noticed that the caring kinds the caring doctors, nothing grieves them more than when they realize that there's nothing more that they can do to help those in need, those who are suffering. And I imagine this physician who had seen people suffering all around them with pain in his heart. I can only imagine the joy and the thrill that came into his heart as he saw Jesus working powerfully through Peter and restoring this poor, wretched man. And so there is joy in Luke's words. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He mentions leaping twice, doesn't he? What's interesting is that in chapter 4, in verse 22, uh, we read that this man was more than 40 years old. Think about that. This man, as a child, he watched with pain in his heart as other children ran free and played. What did that child think and feel? And now he was leaping like a happy child. And this man, all his life, for more than 40 years, you know, he was the man when other people saw him, they would quietly say in their heart, oh, what a sad, poor man. I hope I never become like that man. But now everyone saw him. And they wonder if they can also know joy as this man has come to know joy. So that is the power of Jesus' name. And the second thing that we see is the glory of Jesus' name. Glory of Jesus' name. And no wonder the crowd was astounded. They were amazed. And they began to gather and crowd around Peter and John and the healed man. And Peter spoke. And the thing that becomes immediately clear is how Peter did not make himself the center of the attention. Rather, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? I think surely one of the most inappropriate things, one of the most unbecoming things is when uh, preachers 
make everything about them. You know, it's the gospel, even the pulpit, become a tools for building their platform. But not for Peter and John. Because Peter and John, they are faithful to Jesus. They are servants of the Lord. And they pointed people, the crowd, to Jesus. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. And if you read through this passage, what becomes obvious is that Peter and even the healed man fade into the background as Christ becomes both prominent and preeminent. And that's how it should be. And I think that's one of the characteristic marks of true gospel ministry. It is about Christ. Jesus must become prominent, and he must become preeminent, and that's what Peter does here. You know, actually, that's a very good test, isn't it? Uh, When you listen to a sermon, when you listen to people talk about the Bible, the thing that we should always be asking is, where is Jesus? How, How is the name of Christ being exalted? Is he the center of the attention. And that's exactly what we see here. And notice the second thing, how Peter proclaims Christ and how Peter applies to Jesus many excellent, exalted titles and name. And so this Jesus of Nazareth in verse 13, Peter says, is God's servant. And of course, we having just come through Isaiah, having spent a lot of time thinking about the servant of the Lord, when, uh, when we come to the New Testament, we can never read Jesus being God, called God's servant and not think about Isaiah. Jesus of Nazareth is God's servant. He's the one that Isaiah talked about, and for example, in chapter 52 and 53, the one who would bear upon himself the iniquity of God's people, the one who would face God's wrath and suffer judgment and wrath in their place to make them whole. And that's what Peter says Jesus is, the servant of the Lord. And in verse 14, Peter calls Jesus the holy and righteous one. And you know, of course, from the Old Testament, that is a title reserved for God, the holy and righteous one. And so Peter is making quite a claim here, isn't he? That he is the holy one. He is the righteous one of Israel. But not only that, because Jesus is the holy and the righteous one, that means this, Jesus will never mistreat and he will never injure anyone who comes to him. Yes, in his sovereign wisdom and love that is beyond our comprehension, he does call us to suffer for him. He does call us to be patient through life's many trials. But he is the holy and the righteous one. In all of his dealings with us, he will never mistreat. He will never injure anyone who would follow him. Because his ways are always good. 
His ways are always holy. His ways are always just, and His ways are always straight. And no one will be led astray from life and blessing because they follow Jesus. You know that's what Peter is saying. In verse 15, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. He is the creator. And apart from him, not one thing came into existence that exists. And apart from him, you and I would not be alive. He's the one who breathed life into our bodies and made us alive. We owe our life to Jesus. Yet in a stunning act of grace, he allows sinful men to take his life away. What mystery that is. And in verse 22, Peter quotes a well-known prophecy of Moses, how he said, God will raise up a prophet like me, and you must listen to him. Jesus is the prophet that Moses prophesied and promised. And Peter tells us that all of the Old Testament prophets, not only Moses, but also Samuel and others, in their own ways, in their own place, They all spoke of Jesus, and they all had one message. Receive Jesus. Serve Jesus. And what that tells us is this. It doesn't matter if we think we have done well in every aspect of life. Maybe we have a great career. Maybe we have earned some advanced degrees. Maybe we have become very successful uh, with our business. Maybe we have a wonderful, happy family. Maybe people admire us and praise us. Maybe you have done well in every aspect of life, but if you have not received Jesus, if you do not serve Jesus, you have actually failed at life. Because God's will, which he revealed through his prophets time and time again, which he revealed in his word time and time again, God's will for us is that we receive and serve Jesus. That is the central and the most important purpose that God has for man. And if we don't, if we don't do that, It doesn't matter how well we think we are doing the rest of life. If we haven't received and served Jesus, we have failed at life. Conversely, it may be that we've had a very hard life. It may be that we think that we have done nothing right in life. It may be that we think everything has gone wrong in life. But if we have received and trusted Jesus, That means that we have fulfilled and obeyed God's most important and precious plan. Even when nothing in life has seemed to go on our way, if we have received and trusted Jesus, you have lived life well. That's success. And that is the glory of Jesus' name. Because without Jesus, nothing in the world, no matter how wonderful and great matter, 
but when we are in Jesus and He is in us. No failures, no pain, no loss matter. We have won. We have conquered. Thirdly, we come to the promise of Jesus' name, the promise of Jesus' name. Now, I don't know if you noticed. I hope you did. Notice how Peter speaks very clearly, boldly, about their sins. You know, these people, they were amazed and they gathered. What does Peter say to them? Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, even a Gentile king, Gentile ruler, knew that Jesus was innocent. He wanted to set him free. But you, you handed Jesus over to die. You deny the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you kill the author of life. Wow, that's very confrontational, isn't it? Actually, it was necessary because no one feels the need for Redeemer until they first feel the weight of their sin. And so no one can bear a faithful witness of Jesus who will not speak clearly about sin. So speaking clearly about sin is absolutely necessary. You cannot be a faithful witness of Jesus until and unless you can speak clearly boldly about sin and confront people about their sins. On the other hand, another thing that we note about Peter's message here is that no one can bear faithful witness of Jesus who will not speak clearly about forgiveness. Notice Peter does both. He calls them, you sinners. You crucified Jesus. You betrayed him. You handed him over to die. Even so, and yet that was necessary. No one will feel the need for a Savior unless they see themselves clearly as sinners. But Peter does not end with sin. His message does not dwell upon sin any more than it is absolutely necessary. But in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Uh, in those days, uh, writings were done on papyrus using ink that contained no acid. Uh, so it wasn't like the ink that we use today. Uh, when you would write on papyrus with the ink that you had, because the ink didn't contain any acid, all it would, uh, all it would take to wipe it off was some damp cloth. And that's the word that is used here, blotted out, wiped away. It's, it's as, if, as if Peter is saying, your sins are written on papyrus with ink, but God is able to take his grace completely erase every trace of your sins against him. 
God is able, as it were, as, as a matter of an expression, to leave a clean slate. There is no remember of, remembrance of sin anymore. And so Peter says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You see, no one can repent and no one will repent unless the promise of salvation draws them. You know, I've seen some dangerous tendencies, Christians who, who think that it is, that the responsibility falls upon them to convince people how terrible people's sins are. And so they think it's their responsibility to leave people miserable in sin as long as possible. And they want to drive on the pen. Let me show you exactly how terrible your sin is. <laughs> and they withhold the promise of forgiveness until they are satisfied that these people are suffering because of their sin. Convicting people of their sinfulness is not our job. Our job is to, yes, talk to them about sin, but understand that no one can or will repent unless the promise of forgiveness and salvation draws them. And that's what Peter is doing. God will blot out your sin. He will wipe away your sins. And so we tell people, if God, if God is willing to wipe away even the very sin of delivering his own precious beloved son, if God is willing to wipe away that sin, is there any sin that God will not or cannot forgive. You see, if God is willing to forgive you and wash you clean for betraying His beloved and only begotten Son, and actually what's really interesting is that the Bible teaches us not just the Jews of the first century, but we are all responsible for Jesus' death because it was our sins that he took upon the cross. We have all betrayed the Son of God. And the Lord says, I will forgive. I will wipe away your sins. And isn't it wonderful if God is willing to forgive us for betraying his Son? Is there any sin that he will not forgive, that he cannot forgive? And the answer is, by no means. Whatever our sin, the moment we claim Jesus by faith, that sin is forgiven. It is wiped away. It is blotted out. Nothing of it remains. And that is why with the promise of forgiveness comes the promise of restoration. Peter says, repent, the times of refreshing may come, upon, uh, come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Peter is reminding them, the crowd, about the final day of judgment. And notice what Peter says. For the unbelieving people, the coming of Jesus will be a day of wrath and judgment. But for those who lean on Jesus, his coming will be the day of healing and restoration, the times 
of refreshing. What that means, if I can put it this way, because you and I, we have trusted Jesus, because we lean on him, because we wait for him with love and faith in our heart, when Jesus comes back, you and I will also leap like a child. It's been a long time since I left for anything. You know, we, as we grow older, we just don't do that anymore, do we? <laughs> but one day, when Jesus comes back, you know, just like Jesus said, unless you become like a child, one day when Jesus comes back, we will be like that happy, excited child who can barely contain the joy And one day when Jesus comes back, we will be blessed beyond our wildest dreams. And the world will look upon us and we'll be left speechless at the joy that has become ours. So that, loved ones, is the promise of Jesus' name. For now, we don't experience the fullness of the glory of being in God's kingdom. For now, we do not taste fully the blessings of being God's children. For now, we suffer. For now, we endure. But one day, the time of refreshing will come. One day, you and I, we will leap. One day, the watching world will be amazed at the great joy that has become ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of Jesus' name, for the glory of his name, and the promise that we have in his name. And so we pray, O Lord, that the name of Jesus Christ may forever be our refuge, our hope, and our shelter. And may the name of Jesus Christ be our delight. And may we live and die to exalt the great name of our Savior and our King. And I pray, O Lord, that you would encourage each and every one of us that although for now we suffer and we endure, we long for the day when we will be made new, when joy will overwhelm every memory that is painful, and we will be made perfect and full of joy. So be with us until then. Strengthen us. Hold us in your loving hands. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.